Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the mid-alt that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. By the way, if you listen to this on a new app called Entale, E-N-T-A-L-E, you will be able to see pictures, shop links, and generally have a really relaxing magazine experience. Hi, I'm Annabelle, and I'm absolutely fine, but um, I saw an old school friend the other day, and we were reminiscing about how we used to bite our toenails. So that was romantic, <laughs> and then we decided to prove that we still could. <laughs> And I was so determined to prove that I still could, and I still can, that I think I might have broken my ankle because I pulled my foot with such force towards my face that my limp is back. Yeah, your limp is back. My limp is back. So you basically dislocated your foot in order to prove that you could that still... I was still 15 yeah. in terms <laughs> and of and my And you can sort of... still bite your toenails, which is disgusting. Disgusting. How are you, Em? Uh, well, I'm absolutely fine, um, but I have low-key, actually high-key panic. Um, and I just keep checking. I'm doing it now. I keep checking my throat, like I can find my pulse to see if I've got like abnormally high um, rate of. You don't know what you're looking for. Exactly. I just feel it's like I'm sure my heart is beating faster than normal. Anyway, I think it's just this time of year. Fucking out. Anyway, it is a real thrill to introduce this week's guest. Every word he writes manages to be both funny and important. He is a, an award-winning journalist and columnist for The Times. He's a satirist, broadcaster, and a regular on Radio 4's The News Quiz. He's won every award going from Stonewall's Journalist of the Year in recognition of his strong support of equal marriage to Best Grooming German Journalist. Best he's Grooming a German. German. <laughs> I know he's a German. The mighty Grooming German. German. I'm also a Germanist. <laughs> You're a Germanist. Ooh, yes, you we're all so Germanist. tired. Plow on them. <laughs> uh, grooming Journalist, which we are going to have to ask him about because I didn't know this. He once compared Theresa May's Brexit plan to a cheese submarine on Twitter, which went viral and landed him on the international news cycle, which is obviously where he belongs, not least because he may or may not be Annabelle's long lost cousin. We are delighted to welcome Hugo Rivkin to the podcast. Yay! Yay! Hello. Hi. How are you, Hugo? I am absolutely fine. Um, <laughs> except I've had just a sort of deranged week where in, in the last week I, there, was, there was the election to worry about, which I'm sure we'll talk about. I went to Washington for a wedding and we buried my mother's ashes. And we did all of this in the space of, I'd say, about two and a half days. Oh, That's which life's is, um, rich tapestry compressed. Which is, which is, yeah, it was kind of like a sort of a, a film with Hugh Grant, maybe. Yeah, fuck, fuck, yeah, fuck. A, wed fuck. <laughs> a wedding, an election, and a funeral. Yeah. But it, it was an incredibly short period of time to the extent that, like, I went, went to bed, got back from Washington yesterday morning. I went to bed and I was sort of looked at Fran, my wife, and I was like, "We buried my mum four days ago." It's like, how how can it only have been four days? I mean, it seems like like a month oh has passed my God. in that Do time. Do you know what? Um, my father died in two thousand and one, and we have not yet done anything with the right. ashes. Sure. And he was—I remember—he was seven foot tall. He was a giant. My father he had size seventeen feet. And they said after he was cremated, they called this very nice lady called something like Cheryl called and said, "Um, hello. Um, the ashes won't fit in one urn. Oh would you like two urns, or would you like us to scatter the excess in the rose garden?" <laughs> Um, we now have two urns that are sitting Do you, in the No one scattered the excess. No, no, they've never been scattered. Can they just get a bigger urn? Uh, apparently not. Wow. We're going to be on the realm. Bigger We're going to need a bigger urn. <laughs> Oh my God. So they're sitting in my brother's, uh, you know, sort of front room in a sort of slightly sinister way. But anyway, it's become wow. rather cosy. I'm not sure I want to scatter them anymore. Yeah, but then I guess eventually, you know, when it's when it's time for somebody to scatter you, they'll be like, well, what's this thing on the mantelpiece? And, and and God knows what will happen. Oh, so you, I don't you want, you want to be scattered. I want to be right there. Malevolent really? presence reminding them <laughs> of what I take a dim view about. My grandfather's ashes were scattered at sea and they had to they had to kind of hire a boat at, sort of at Dover and kind of sail out. Oh, wow. Neither of, of his children were kind of sea 
had sea legs at all. They were all green and vomiting. And you <laughs> don't want to scatter yeah. them in the wrong direction because you no. end up snorting them. Yeah. With the face yeah. of, yes. Like Ronnie Wood. Yes. No oh, wow. What? Who, did who, he who, either who, snorted or smoked one of his parents? Oh, was yes, it him? I remember that, yeah. Was it Keith Richards? <laughs> it was, I don't uh, want to cast aspersions. No, Keith, Keith Richards is definitely still alive. Or get sued. <laughs> no, no, the parent. <laughs> who is Ronnie Wood? <laughs> Okay, all of the stones are fine. Okay, everyone. This mm. isn't some, some late breaking news. There's so much to unpack with what yeah, you're you absolutely Okay, fine. So, let, <laughs> so, 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 so let's begin with the election, which was unbelievably stressful for everybody when they weren't having to work round the clock of the news cycle. So, mm. I mean, did, uh, did the pressure just build for you as the uh, as the days went past? Yes. Yes, sure. I'm planning on I'm planning on being very ill over Christmas in that way that when you've just got about it. I mean, it's like I'm. It's sort of ridiculous because on one hand, I'm very much in the sort of cut and thrust of everything that's going on in politics and it is does all beat down on top of you on the end on the other end of the scale really my job is to write jokes about it so yeah. it's not like it's not like it's, it's it should be that much pressure really um but um i totally disagree okay because satire fine. is monumentally important so i think you are rightly under huge pressure because of your huge talent you know what i'm not gonna mess with that i'm just gonna i'm gonna <laughs> i can I, I, I can work with that what was weird about it was so so the i mean i write this column my week on saturdays in, in the paper and often when there's been a big thing going on that week I'll do one that's about multiple people rather than one person which means you've got to get everybody in a everybody in a sentence and a funny sentence which some it's it's so it's, just it's bit, just to clarify for listeners if they haven't read it which I'm sure most of them have you do it as you take you take on the persona yes so if you take on somebody's persona in over the space of 600 words that's kind of it's basically it's this sort of like lo, sort of long running I started writing this column uh, when I was doing the when I started started doing the gossip diary on the times and i thought they'll put up with this for maybe a week or two because it's I'll, obviously so silly because it's so silly and that was 14 years ago oh my god and is it really that long yeah i'm afraid so and it's just sort of become the sort of a major part of what i do so quite often i'll do it about usually i do it about one person i do the whole week in their in their perspective their voice and it's not it's not really parody it's more it's ridiculous whatever um <laughs> but when there's been a big week i'll try and do lots and lots of people at once and um purely in writing terms speaking to a couple of writers it's very tight writing in that there's no space to do you've got like eight words in order to get the character start a joke get, peak and get the laugh as well as getting the character in the event you're talking yeah. about so it's very and making a political point presumably precisely yeah um so it's it's um in in writing terms it's, it's sort of quite an interesting thing to do but um this week because i had to file that column after the election which hadn't happened yet before getting on a plane to washington i tried for the first time to try and get quite a lot of it done before the election had happened, which feeling is that you you had you had been in the minds yeah. of these characters for the last sort of fourteen years or whatever, exactly, of them, definitely for fourteen years. So you felt that you were confident. But actually, it's quite hard to extract any meaning from what Jeremy Corbyn says on Tuesday if you don't know what's happening on Thursday night. And so I, it was quite I, a weird. I thought you were just gonna say it's quite hard to. No, although, he didn't, although, <laughs> well, although actually, Jeremy Corbyn didn't change his tune at all. Well, no, but you still you, you don't know which way to turn the joke if you don't know what's going to happen at the end. You know, you can't yes. turn the joke. You can turn the joke to make him look ridiculous and always. But if if he'd ended up doing surprisingly well in the election, then everything he said on Monday or Tuesday sounds a bit different. Yeah, of course it you does. Know. So yeah. I ended up sort of almost Boris Johnsoning it and more or less writing two. And then just sort of filing the right way. It was <laughs> just like Boris just like did yeah, with Brexit. Exactly. Yeah. But did you have an instinct for what was going to happen? Or were you surprised? Well, I mean, kind of both. <laughs> I, um, I thought the Tories would win. But I'm so, I mean, and probably get a majority. It didn't seem possible. You could see where, you could see lots of seats that the Tories would win or could win, and you couldn't see any seats that Labour would win from anybody else. And right. that, that's, that that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But there's also this sort of background grinding thing that I think most journalists have these days, which is we're wrong about everything. And so you kind of think, well, surely 
what seems sensible to me is exactly what's not going to happen. No, I'm not, not that I wanted the Tories to win. I would have been much happier with a sort of hung parliament in which everybody had done terribly. Um, but um, <laughs> I mean, that was genuinely, what, genuinely what I wanted. Yeah. It was like there was a hierarchy of who I wanted to suffer the most. <laughs> um, but um, uh, yeah, so I um, I was surprised at the size of it, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. And what yeah. were there any other surprises? Everyone the way that people surprised. behaved or the reactions that you that you witnessed going on in the run up and during? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm sort of I remain surprised at the extent to which the Tories just brazenly lied their way through it, particularly as, in retrospect, they didn't even have to. Because when I'm not sort of writing silly stuff, I write when I write serious politics, I quite often focus on the sort of the intersection between technology and politics. And so I write a lot about political Facebook ads and things like that. And looking at them, the Tories ones were just all lies. They were just they just put out this barrage of lies on the Internet. And Labour, I mean... Uh, what were they lying about? Well, they'd say things like the Labour manifesto says your petrol got by 16 pence a litre. Right. Doesn't. Didn't. I mean, it said it had various policies, which I suppose if you extrapolated one. from them, you could say, well, perhaps that'll lead to petrol prices that could be... But like they were talking about putting a wealth tax on fuel companies, for example, a profit tax, rather. There were a lot of graphs um, circulating on, on my Twitter, anyway, towards the end of the election... Uh, to, towards the end of the campaign with the sort of the 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 uh, as a graph of of how many as a sort of a visual diagram yeah. like a Venn diagram of how many lies the Tories were were saying compared to everyone else and it was just like triple double quadruple it was extraordinary I mean, it's partly because they do politics differently so like Labour didn't lie so much but that's sort of because they're Labour's making sort of mad projections about the future that are neither a lie nor not a lie like right. you know if Labour's saying your life will be golden and we will invent the unicorn then you're kind of like well it's not strictly speaking a lie it's it's bollocks yeah. but it's but, <laughs> but it's um it's like it's, it's, not yeah. a, it's, it's sort of a it's like a religion really. it's like a religion yeah and so they were making more faith-based claims which might be of course absurd but you can't say you, you're lying and you know you're lying I think I found from my social media because I was stuck in an echo chamber of sort of metropolitan elite I retrospectively mm -hmm. suppose I thought that there would definitely be a hung parliament. I didn't, I didn't think mm. the Tories would win for a second because yeah. I was, what I was witnessing with the people that I follow was yeah. was was a was a was a, a Labour fanaticism almost. Sure, I mean Twitter is very surprised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Twitter yeah. was really yeah. shocked, and then and then has now just been tearing itself from from limb to limb yeah. and eating itself. Because, I mean, it always, kind of, always does, yes, but it's just it's true. just the kind of yeah. The, you have got a love hate relationship with Twitter, don't you? Yeah. Or do you or do you, or do you mostly hate it? No, I really like it. Yeah. I really um. I thought the wisest thing that I've ever seen written about how people behave on Twitter, it's in uh, Rob Webb's book, the, the How to Be a Boy, How to Be a Boy, How to Be a Man, whatever. Very good book. Uh, and he's he's got this bit about how um he realised sort of somewhere in, he'd been used on Twitter for a couple of years, and basically what he'd do is he'd have a few drinks in the pub, and then he'd go home and he'd fight with people on Twitter. And he's going, this is like I'm just like a drunk man who picks fights in the pub, <laughs> but but instead I'm doing it on the internet. Um, that's like my road rage. I get incredibly ang uh, angry and swear viciously with the window wound up so no one can hear me. But, no, that, but, but Twitter is like having permanent road rage. It's basically like, get out of my way or why yeah. are you saying this? It's the equivalent or this is this is wrong or you haven't said fucking thank you for letting me in. <laughs> that's basically what, that's the manifestation of it. Yes, Twitter is the sort of a digital embodiment of what I really don't like about people is the, 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 the endless need to point out where everyone else is wrong. Yeah, but I mean, It's something I really don't seek in friends. But then that is also being a columnist really. And so it's the so it, it is you the need gig, to leave. you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I also I also find I mean I really do I really enjoy Twitter also for the mm. fights. Yeah, sure, sure. Actually, I mean because also I don't get any you know I don't get you're anyone. A, you're, you're, when it comes to fights, you're, you're you're definitely a lurker. I'm a total you? lurker, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, what's going on here? Oh, gotta watch that. Do you think that you that as you've got older, doing your my week and doing your political political journalism, you're you're you, you've got more serious about it. It's mattered more. Oh, you yeah. feel less of a spectator, more of a stakeholder. Yes, but that's not my fault. 
That's because I mean that's that's cause, that's because the world's gone nuts. Not because you're older and you're a father and. No, it's like it's like that thing about what's that the famous story about the the kid who doesn't talk till he's seven, and then they say and he says, "Can you?" They're on the beach, and he says, "Can you move the parasol or something?" And then the mother goes, "You've what's this? You've never spoken before." And he says, "Until now, everything was satisfactory." <laughs> uh, and it's it's kind of like that, right? I didn't um I sort of didn't particular I wasn't particularly aware of my politics until really quite recently. I kind of you know I sometimes voted Labour and I sometimes voted Lib Dem and I, I once voted Conservative, uh, and I mainly just sort of bumbled along and then. Pretty much with the Scottish independence referendum, I suddenly sort of became aware of just huge waves of people who wanted the world not to be as I did. And um, and I sort of became much more kind of active. I mean, and I, my, my views have sort of changed quite a lot on a lot of things, even since then. So I, I always find it odd, these people who are supposed to be sort of tied to the politics they had in their kind of sort of mid-20s, because I don't I really that was, that, yeah. was, that was part of my problem with Corbyn and his lot. Mm. There was no possibility for ever changing their mind on anything. Yeah, I mean, I don't... I and don't. that's terrifying. No, I agree. I find uh, the biggest rows I've ever had are the people who just say, oh, no, I, I voted this my whole life. I, yeah. I have the same as you. I voted all over the place. Just Me because too. in terms of... Um, in terms of, of, of what I believed at the time, what was relevant to me at the time, what yeah. I cared about, you know, and I think, um, and that now that I'm a 45-year-old mother of two, you know, things are different than when I was a 20, well, my first election was the Tony Blair 2007? Yeah. 97. 97. Yes. 97. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Sorry, just shaving 10 years of my life there rather keenly. Um, yeah, 97. So that was, I mean, you know, I was at university. It was historic. I mean, it, well, was, it's, it was incredible. It's like you discussed politics with a like a 22 year old and there's sort of the certainty there and it's like well either you're a fucking genius and you've figured it all out or there's some stuff you haven't quite thought about properly yeah, yet yeah. you know um, totally different things at stake isn't it you know yeah. it's, it's like a 22 year old can say this is my future whereas a 45 year old can say yeah this is my house my job <laughs> and my kids yeah. so you know and who, who who has more right to that I mean neither but they're, they're obviously going to shift yeah I mean I think that's what makes it that's what annoys me about the fact that there isn't 100% turnout every year Mm. I mean, do you think head? it should be mandatory? Yeah. Well, well, it, I, it is every year these days, so that's fine. Yeah, we've had an election every year. I was God, astounded. So that was that it. was the biggest surprise for me, probably, of this election, apart from the deranged result, was the fact that the turnout was down in 2017. And I knew that everyone was mm. exhausted, but I also knew how you know that this was how how crucial this felt. So I was really surprised by that. Well, yes, although, I mean, I did vote, but I I could have not voted very easily. I could have thought, how? I mean, I'm in a I'm in a safe Labour seat, and I could have thought, how do I best register my disgust? With everything that's on offer, it's exactly. Uh, you know, I, I think low turnout. Wasn't it strange to have an election where you dreaded every result? Yeah. Mm. I also thought. I also thought. I was. T I've taken it really personally that my area, which is Brent Central, that there that the turnout has gone down like significantly. So only fifty eight percent. I was like, right. Jesus Christ, what is wrong with us? What can't are you we going all to do about that? it? I don't know. You I'm can't do any more volunteering. Obviously <laughs> Emily is always dressed as an elf or an Easter egg or reading in church or I know you know what I'm gonna do in, in twenty twenty I'm going to volunteer at the library. Wow. I know. Mm. It only is... occurred to me in a slightly disturbing way about sort of yesterday that people are now talking about the start of a new decade, like that's a very meaningful thing. And I was like, yeah. do we need more meaningful things that are pressurising us into terms of you know how we're going to be and what we're going to do? So I've decided not to connect with that at all. <laughs> well, but except it is the start of a new thing. I mean, it's all it's all over, right? It's like the, the chaos of the last few years. Is it, though? It's over. It's just over bad. 
you know, oh, you know, it's, I love that. It's yeah. over bad, as in it's slump, over, but it's just slumped yeah. into the over bit rather well, than risen to some kind yeah, of Brexit's challenge. Yeah, Brexit's going to happen. It's, it's like the debate at the moment about who's going to be the next leader of the Labour Party. It's like, so who, who gives who a fuck? Cares? There's not going to be an election for the next five years. It doesn't matter. It? No, you know, do, right. do what you want. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's over bad. You know, the, I mean, yeah, it, it's it, we we are about to sort of enter this period of sort of relentlessly grim stability. I think. Because no, whatever mad rubbish they come up with for a Brexit deal, it will get through. Yeah, yeah. without so question. That. And yeah. then that's that. That's yeah. done. So and it, so it is going to be the cheese submarine. Yep. Can you explain, please, the cheese submarine to our listeners, if you can face it? Uh, so I was I was sitting on, on, on the floor on a landing outside the bathroom and my kids had a bath, uh, which is which is where all, all the best tweets come from. And, um, and at the time, it was when Theresa May had brought back one of her first Brexit deals and everyone was talking about how rubbish it was, which it was. But they were talking about how rubbish it was and the kind of kind of idea that they could do better. And I think, well, you can know because you can't have a good Brexit deal because for all the reasons that her Brexit deal was bad, all Brexit deals are going to be like bad. having a good murder. Exactly. And so I tried to think of a thing that basically was achievable, but just not achievable well because it was <laughs> conceptually an incredibly stupid idea. And um, and I came up with this idea of a, of Brexit. It's like if people had voted to build a cheese submarine, which is an incredibly expensive thing that you could do. Yeah. But for fuck's sake, why? <laughs> um, and um, and so I had a sort of stream of tweets about that, and it went quite viral. It went very viral uh, to the extent that the next day I got interviewed about it on MSNBC by very very serious Americans. Can you explain to us this analogy? And it's like, well, really? Um, and um, and then it started um, cropping up across the international press. I started doing a sort of Google Translate searches of like sort of you know the words cheese submarine but in Portuguese, <laughs> and it turned. I think it, the whole tweet stream got read out in the German Parliament. I mean, it was really really strange. Nobody laughed at all. Uh, that. Um, Germans. It was it was one of the oddest things, one of the oddest things that's happened to me professionally. I would say. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, I think the thing is is that it was such a perfect analogy, and and it got picked up because it was exactly at a point where everybody was so kind of perplexed and confused yeah. and desperate it articulated kind of, the sort of hopelessness exactly and and it was funny i mean i think that's the thing it's uh, and it was funny and well it also it feels true. quite elon musk yes it's like well, at some could, point he yeah. might just decide to do well you know what so, since since and then he'll call everyone a pedo who yes, doesn't pedo uh, guy yeah. believe in my cheese submarine <laughs> since i wrote that among the many the extensive feedback i had someone has brought to my attention there's a cheese called chirpy which comes from tibet which is incredibly good they make dog dog uh, snacks out of it and it's incredibly hard and you really could build quite an effective submarine <laughs> largely out of chirpy I'm amazed so. do you know what it. let's tell Jeremy Clarkson <laughs> yes we must be in search of new ideas well and exactly because his new program is called Seaman anyway so um, <laughs> so that's the, that he will definitely want to try and I'm sorry it's called what Seaman as okay. in sea men. As in men who go to sea. Oh, good. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so we, Hugo and I have had one conversation about this before about about whether or not we're related. Do you think we look alike, Em? Um, same planet? Not same planet. Maybe. Mm. Do you maybe. know where you're from? What sort of fucking question is that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Edinburgh. No, I'm like, ethnically. Ethnically, I'm from. Uh, I'm half from. Well, the Rif- it's the Rifkin bit that's important. You don't care where the Steinbergs come from. Um, I'm um, from Lithuania. Vilnius, thereabouts. But Mich- the Mischedis, but the Rifkin called. thing is not really a name. It's uh, you explained this to me once. Rifka's Kinder, right? So Rifka's Kinder. Back in the day when we were in the old country, um, in the Shetel, uh, the Tsar at the time, whoever the Tsar was, would send his troops around. This is the story, anyway. Would send his troops round to the villages to round up all the young men to take them off to the army, and he only wouldn't take them if they were the only means of support of an old lady. So families that had more than one son would get their sons to pretend they lived with single old ladies 
And the story is that my ancestor was farmed off to be looked after by a woman called Rebecca or Rifka. And what with this being Germanic, Yiddishy type place, he became known as Rifka's Kinder. And that could have happened across all of Eastern, Eastern Europe. Yeah, sure. I mean, all the, all the names came from somewhere. You know, because a lot of the a lot of Jewish names, Eastern European Jewish names, are in fact aristocratic Eastern European names because people would, landowners would give their Jews the, the names of their of the, the people next door as an insult and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but that's what we believe. And it's not even, it's not, it's not so long ago. I mean, tracing back the family tree, you only go back about five or six generations and there's, yeah. no, there's no surnames, you know. So, um, it's probably so do you true. think you're Rifka's kin? Possibly. I mean, I think we're probably not related. <laughs> <laughs> Be nice. Do you feel Scottish? Yes, of that, course. That's that's who you are. Yeah, I mean, my voice is all over the place. I know. Yeah. If I, well, I do quite a lot of radio on BBC Scotland, I have a completely different voice there. Can't help it. Do you? Yeah. Do you go Scotsch? Oh, very much so. Go Scot- on, go Scot- on, Scottish. It. No, I can't. If I could do it on purpose, I'd do it all oh, the time. Oh, I see. Okay. And have, a, have a much more distinctive broadcasting career. We should, re- <laughs> we, should, we, should, we, should, we should really get Emily to do her Scottish No, accent. please don't. I sound Indian. Um, <laughs> can I just say that, um, that I have a terrible... I, I have a, both a tin ear and an inability not to pick up the accent of the person that I'm speaking to. Oh, yeah. So I have a, this inc- awful combination of like speaking Australian to Australians, mm-hmm. but actually I sound it's, it's, Scottish. It's a manifestation Amazing. of your out-of-control codependence. Yes, I think. It? Totally. It's <laughs> utter people-pleasing. It's like if I start mimicking the way you sound, maybe you'll love me more. Yeah. I know. Yeah, maybe that's why I, I do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Once you go super English. But even yeah. in America, when I lived in America, and I thought it would be in my interest to sound as English mm-hmm. as possible, I just sounded like I'd been dropped somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and not in a good way anyway so but it's very hard to control but anyway I kind of do similar it, it, where it's been difficult is when I do the news quiz on Radio 4 I used to do it quite often with, with either Sue Kalman or Fred McCauley oh dear and so it'd be, I'd be like two different people <laughs> like, how, how many people are on this panel um, you know. who's the schizophrenic over yeah. there who's like I mean, do you feel a bit do you feel a bit culturally schizophrenic in in the sense that you're here and you you, you write I mean obviously mm. but you're I know how much in, you are invested in Scottish politics in a way that you know well must make it quite hard at the moment yeah I mean yes and no it's like so being Jewish from Scotland is quite unusual. Yeah. Being Jewish from Edinburgh is very unusual. Uh, there are reasons why I left. You know, it was a bit odd being me in Scotland, I won't lie. But um, Because people were unpleasant or because you just felt isolated? No, because, um, uh, I mean, partly because my dad was a public figure and that was a much mm. bigger deal in Scotland. Uh, but also just I could feel the mess of North London calling, I suppose. <laughs> um, but, uh, but whereas now I go back, you know, I was spent a week in Scotland during the election. And I'm very invested in Scottish politics. I'm very, I've got, I've got a very sort of, I don't know how you'd say it, very integral understanding of Scottish politics. Integral is the wrong word. Um, instinctive, innate. Instinct, innate. Um, what did you, what did you learn and pick up and absorb during that week? Everybody hates the Labour Party. <laughs> oh, okay. Pretty much. Um, so that's what happened. And yeah, so what's Sturgeon going to do next? Well, what she, I mean, she's in an interesting position because, like, kind of, she has what forty whatever percent of the vote. Yeah. Uh, and Scottish politics is so polarised these days that anyone who's going to support independence pretty much is already voting SNP. Right. Now, in our system, that's quite weird because that means if you have 40-plus percent of the vote, you can win every single election, but you can't win a referendum because, no. by definition, that takes over 50% of the vote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's got an absolute mandate for this referendum that she very possibly wouldn't win. Um, and it's It's, it's funny because the perception, the perception in England is that it, it is that she would, isn't it? 
Yeah, I, w- I think a lot of people think, you know, oh God, please don't give her the referendum because you know, if you if you want to you keep the union together, because it's an inevitability that they will win. But you're saying that's not true at all. Oh, it's far from, definitely not yeah. true. I mean, you know, the the I mean, they didn't win last time, and no. and support is has probably declined a bit for then uh, since then. Um, Even in but, the face of Brexit. Well, yes, because Scottish independence is sort of emotionally more appealing post-Brexit. I can feel that myself, uh, you know, even though I don't live there. Um, but it becomes, it's practically a much bigger deal. I mean, look at all the fuss over the border with, with in, in the Northern Irish border. Um, yeah. You know, and you imagine that in Scotland. I mean, there, there's like 10, 15 times as much trade that goes between Scotland and England yeah. as between Northern Ireland and anywhere, really. Um, and um, so you've got a hard border. The hard, the hard border issue is a bigger issue. The currency issue is a bigger issue. All the reasons why Scottish independence would have been risky and damaging last time would be kind of worse this time, and at least until you completely reinvent the economy as Denmark or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I, I mean, it's possible they could win a referendum, but I, I mean, it's it's sort of partly actually why something I find quite strange being in Scotland now that all the um, when I went up when I was up there a lot during the referendum itself, the Scottish referendum. I was very much against Scottish independence and I was on the sort of the same page as everyone I knew and, and that was, well, almost everyone I knew. Actually, quite a lot of pro-indie people. But anyway, whereas now I find a lot of those same people, a lot of the kind of my old friends and family in Scotland are kind of, I find I have a very different view about the SNP than they do because I look at the SNP now and I see this kind of, well, there's a functioning centrist party. I was about if to only say, we had something like that an in unbelievably England. powerful yeah. machine. Um, we were talking about who was the most effective campaigner and, you know, who can, ha- has the ability to cut through, you know, everything and, and get her a point yeah. across and it's Nicola Sturgeon, well, and, but whereas, time after time. Whereas a lot of Scots say, yeah, but you want to you see our, our health service or our education service or the police or what's been happening in Scotland. So it's like, never mind that. I'm talking, <laughs> about, I'm talking about big issues. You know? I, yeah. Do you have an instinct for how Boris Johnson's going to turn out. I mean, is it, you know, let's. I mean, is it, you know, let, let's. You know, is this going to be some kind of rebirth for him? He's only been prime minister for what four months. Going to have a lot of kids with a lot of people. Um, more, I mean, um, no. <laughs> um, I think. I mean, I think it'll be. I that was it, my favourite joke actually about. Yeah, of he won because, because all his kids were yeah. um, <laughs> I think he'll do a lot of big stuff, whether it's successful or not. Is another. I mean, because he's. I mean, this is where sort of Dominic Cummings comes into the fore because he's got you know big I- and and Gove as well up to a point. They've both got big ideas about how to remake Britain in all kinds of ways, which will be great as long as that's not bollocks. Um, <laughs> I expect there'll be a lot of stuff about like post Brexit, a lot of stuff in in relatively impoverished parts of Britain where they try and do clever tax stuff, like they do enterprise zones or they do you know start a business in this place and you don't need to pay corporation tax for the first ten years and all that kind of stuff. And um, which the hope will be it kind of sort of reinvigorates bits of the north without having to spend any money on them. Right. Um, but um, who knows, to be honest. I, kind of, I mean, I have no idea. As a political journalist, do you ever just feel exhausted? What do you mean ever? Like always? <laughs> yes, of course. I can't carry on. Um, well, it's a tension, right, between two roles, for particularly if you're a columnist, in that there's the analysis, there's analysis and there's advocacy. And you're kind of, constantly sort of doing both and sometimes you just want to park the advocacy and go like never mind never mind what I think just let me try and understand this thing you know just give me the time of day to understand what you're saying which I'm going to have to get really quite involved in before I'm even nearly confident enough to tell you it's bollocks <laughs> um, you know and um, and so the the bit that gets exhausting is trying to get away from the advocacy side of things you know like the, there are periods of 
my sort of working life where I've tried quite hard to do that. Like I kind of, um, you know, we were just talking about Scotland since the Scottish independence referendum where I was, well, the beginning of the Scottish independence referendum, I signed a letter in, in support of preserving the, preserving the union. And then I deliberately stopped having any kind of activist role because I really wanted to understand what was going on. And I wanted to be able to speak to independent supporters without them necessarily assuming I was the enemy, which I think I managed to a decent degree. And I now have a decent sort of, you know, conversational relationships with a lot of people who are very much in the kind of independence camp. Um, I never quite managed to do that with, well, I, I never properly, properly managed to do that with, the, with say, the left of the Labour Party, although I didn't in some cases. I have sort of decent relationships with a lot of people who have very different politics to me and that. Well, I've never managed to do that with Brexiters, with hard Brexiters. I find, weirdly, Brexit is the one where I find it very, very hard to 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 park my absolute hostility to everything they're saying and just try and understand it Someone on once their told me that that was the first time they'd witnessed British attitudes mirroring those of Americans where historically Republicans and Democrats couldn't really have reasonable conversations yeah. and the same thing suddenly happened here with Remainers and Leavers. Yeah, I, I, I find it very hard to get into a position where I can accept that what they're saying is being said in good faith without also thinking they're stupid i can do one, I can do one or the <laughs> other the it's like I can, yeah. I can i can i can i can think you're lying or i can think you're stupid but i'm i just i can't find a way to think neither mm. stupid is wrong but wrong, wrong rather than stupid i should say i'm doing it now you see what i mean yeah, yeah. yeah. automatic yeah. assumption mm. so how long ago since since the election it's really it, it feels Thursday. like forever it's, it's, a week. Now. It's, it's, it's a week yeah. it does feel and so um and so you so you're you buried your mum's ashes on the on, on the, the morning of the election on the morning of the election oh yes my goodness. I've, 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 on the morning of the election not the election result of the election that yes. was so that filthy rainy day oh yeah yeah okay. i um i mean she she died six weeks ago or yeah. so no i've written about this actually and i've done a spectator christmas diary um this week she, she married my dad in 1970 when there was an election and they had to cancel their uh, had to postpone their honeymoon because there was an election and then my sister was born two days after the 1976 second 1976 election so my mum's used to this okay basically <laughs> um, elections um, have always loomed they've always got in the way in important life, yeah. life events yeah oh. But she'd been ill for a long time, hadn't she? I'm mean, not that that makes yeah. it. Yeah, no, any... she'd been very. She she had multiple sclerosis, and she uh, she was diagnosed when I was 21. I'm 42 now. Gosh. So she lived yeah. a long time, and it's quite a, that makes quite a weird. Um, it's it has quite a weird impact on the grieving process because you're not quite sure because she'd been so ill for so long. You're not quite sure what who to grieve yeah. for. You know, should I be remembering her? Because it's a lot. Everyone basically has. Look, everyone's parents die. That's what happens. And a lot of people have parents who get very, very sick before they die. It's relatively rare to have a parent who gets very, very sick for decades yeah, before yeah. they die. And it's quite uncharted territory there. And so, in a way, it's almost like a, a blessing I can, in that it must be much harder immediately afterwards if you lose a parent, bang, in a heartbeat, literally in a heartbeat, and you were talking to them the week before. You know, Do you know? I, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it's a very complicated. My father was 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 very ill in a very different way mm. for um, about twenty years before he right. died. Okay, um, and 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 it it played tricks with my mind because because when I was. 11 I, I thought he would die the next day yeah. and he died when I was on my 27th birthday wow. and by that point he started to feel immortal right sure so you know, I thought because he'd been so close so often mm -hmm. um, it, it was it, it was it was just so so bizarre when it was finally over yeah sure mm. over you know, bad the, 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 the sort yeah. of the sort of 
drudgy drama of it was mm-hmm. finally done. It was a very peculiar, peculiar feeling. Yeah, no, my dad had been ill for about eight years, but but it was very sudden again because right. it was so many near. There were so many near scrapes, as it were, and then suddenly when he did go, we were left feeling very much. Like, oh my God, I can't believe that this has happened. I remember feeling, Even though we knew that this yeah. is the inevitability. I remember feeling a, that, that strange thing of a layer being peeled away between me and the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, that, 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 that he'd gone and feeling it in a sort of strange existential way. Um, it's, um, it's, a very, it's a very altering thing. And I would imagine that you'll be going through it for, for weeks and months and years to come. Yeah, I, well, I think I'll make more sense of it in weeks and months and years to come. In a way, because it's quite sort of... Uh, it's numbing in the short term because you just again you just don't know what to think about it's like i don't you it's not like i miss picking up the phone and speaking to her because i haven't done that for seven years mm. you know uh or going going around to, going around to see her and let's be honest wasn't that wasn't always that pleasant for the yeah. last few years you know although you still you know i mean i still saw her at least once a week and everything um so um all that kind of stuff all that kind of stuff takes a while to process, but I I sort of don't mind that. I quite like fact. Okay, it's like your brain just goes, you'll you'll get there. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's, no, it's I think fine. it's really interesting. I mean, certainly <clears throat> when my father died, my daughter was really young. She was sort of nine months old, so I was very busy, mm-hmm. and I was just going back to work. So you you have this sort of weird thing where you're where one life, one part of your life is sort of over, but then you are really busy in another direction. And I feel like it was five years later that I was really flawed. Five years, yeah, well, really flawed sure. by it. Well, there's something in to a, look forward in to. A, sorry. <laughs> yes, the next election <laughs> and yes. your nervous yeah. breakdown. And, exactly. And it will be It will be the next election, as, yeah, sure. as will be in time in time on a tradition. So yeah. the morning of this shit show of an election, mm. y- y- you bury your mother. Mm-hmm. You then presumably have a sleepless night. More or less, yeah. Yes, and you're writing about all the fuckery that's going yep. on. And then you get on an aeroplane to go uh, to, to to be a part of a wedding. Yes, I was the... Uh, I've been saying... I, I, I said when I came in, maitre d', I don't mean maitre d'. <laughs> Ma- um, master of ceremonies. You'd be, uh, you'd be a, uh, an hilariously bad maitre d'. Thank you very much. respect. Thank you very much. Um, so did you have to make speeches and announce them? No, I was, I, was like, I was like the vicar. I stood in the middle oh, and I said... You married them. And I said, do you... You, you well, officiated. Technically, they married each other. Um, uh. But... Um, <laughs> in the District of Columbia where we were you can all the words are screwed up when you try and talk about this you can marry yourself <laughs> as in not not like in an Emma Watson yeah. way but you can um, <laughs> you can you can officiate at your own wedding uh, really? yes uh, you it's a legal thing you register and then you get the forms or something but you want someone else to manage the process okay so you, you were I mean. actually the master so I was kind of I was the master of ceremonies but I didn't have the legal power fine they had the legal, pa- they had legal, the legal power they had the legal power themselves. to marry themselves to each other I was Got you. just the the, the, oh, the, that's complicated. the shepherd. When you said you were going to Washington, I thought you meant. And, so did I? Uh, you know, to interview Trump or something. Yeah. It was like, uh, no, uh, you know. Bless you. No. <laughs> no. Yes, so, but but but, um, can you talk us through the grooming journalist of the year award, please? Yeah. Oh wow. Um. So this is um. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I mean, it's a sort of funny story, and I'm trying to think if I can tell, make it sound funny without sounding like just a terrible, terrible person. <laughs> Basically, what it was. I wrote an article for Tatler about I think it was about beards. I can't remember. I think it was about beards. And um, and Hugo I has a, a beard. I have a beard. Uh, and I this is a long time ago. And I and I won this. I, I knew I'd been nominated for this award, Procter, Procter and Gamble Gamble Grooming Journalist of the Year. And then uh, at the time I was I just started working as a as a leader writer at the Times, writing editorials. 
And uh, you'll see whether there's no way of just saying this without sort of ruining the horrible punchline too soon. But we it was just when um, my colleague Andrew Norfolk had done his investigation into the Rochdale, Rochdale grooming scandal. You can see where this is going. And so I'd, could we come out of a meeting about that? Uh, ed- editorial discussion about that and other things and all the things we were going to write, write, write our leaders about. And then I went back to my desk and I got a message saying, you've won this award. And I was feeling a bit guilty about it because I'd written it freelance and I shouldn't really have been freelancing while I was at the paper. And I don't, I don't do that anymore, boss, in case you're listening. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, and I was thinking, oh, well, that's, that's, that, that's nice. And then um, my editor comes over, uh, James Harding, he wouldn't mind me saying this, comes and goes, we need you to write top leader about grooming. <laughs> oh, God. And I, and I, and, and I, li- I literally told him to fuck off. Um, and he was like, why are you? And he was like quite shocked. And, uh, and he goes, Andrew Norfolk's gone. I was like, oh, right. That kind of Yes, fine. Okay. Um, and I went off and wrote it. Um, well and um, I don't think I ever explained to him why I'd told him to fuck off. I think he must have just thought I was so shocked at having to write about this horrible thing. Um, so that, see, there's no good way of telling that story, but it was remarkable. I think um, you did a very good job, as you always do, because you're mm-hmm. always funny and brilliant. So, Hugo, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. We've thank you for having me. Loved having you. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Medult. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. It was never going to be simple. Simple.